0: The Creative Nonfiction Podcast is sponsored by Hippocamp 2018. Now in its fourth year, Hippocamp is a three-day creative nonfiction writing conference that features 50-plus speakers, engaging sessions in four tracks, interactive all-conference panels, author and attendee readings, social activities, networking opportunities, and optional intimate pre-conference workshops. The conference takes place in lovely Lancaster, Pennsylvania from August 24th through August 26th. Visit hippocampusmagazine.com and click the conference tab in the toolbar. And if you enter the keyword CNFPOD at checkout, you will receive a $50 discount. This offer is only good until August 10th or until all those tickets are sold and they are selling. There are a limited number, so act now. Hippocamp 2018. Create, share, live. I've got some sleepy people in the other room. i kind of got to keep my voice down a little bit. hope this isn't too creepy. I've had quite a run of late. I've guessed from the other side of the pond, as it were. Today's no different, as I welcome Paul Willets to the show. Paul is very smart, and he loves the work. He's the author of several books of nonfiction, most recently King Khan. The Bizarre Adventures of the Jazz Age's Greatest Impostor. Yeah, that's right. Hey there, CNFers. I'm Brendan O'Meara, and this is my show. It's a Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I speak to the best artists about the art and craft of how they approach telling true stories. Doc filmmakers like Emer Reynolds, narrative journalists like Susan Orlean and David Graham, memoirs like Mary Carr and Andre the III, essayists like Hope Wabuki to tease out origins, routines, and habits so you can improve your own work and maybe realize you're not so alone out there because it can be a lonely, desolate hellscape and sometimes we need some reassurance that someone who has quote-unquote made it feels the same way. Hey, you know the drill. Reviews and ratings on Apple Podcasts, the app where most of you are listening to this show right now. Or gold. Would you consider taking a few moments out of your day to leave a review? And while you're at it, visit www.BrendanOmera.com for show notes and to sign up for my monthly newsletter. I've been doing that for a few years. Once a month, no spam. Can't beat it. Well, Paul Willetts, everybody, for episode 112. We talk about how he struggles with beginnings, walking as a writing part. Of this process, revision, building scenes. I hope you like it. I know I did. Here's me and Paul. Nice. And is uh, Paul Hollywood and Mary Berry as popular over there as they are over here now? <laughs> uh, yes, they are. Yes,
1: yeah, I'm, a, I'm a keen cook, but I haven't. I've never seen the program, though I've seen his recipes.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah cuz on Netflix over here the Great British Baking Show is like a phenomenon I think my my wife and I are pretty hooked on it so I was wondering like just to what extent like uh like how big their celebrity is in the UK I wondered <laughs> Yeah no,
1: I think it has been enormous yeah it really caught on um yeah
0: Well, something I found particularly um, heartwarming about that show, as opposed to Mm -hmm. American food competitions, which are often rooted in sometimes false drama and also a lot of money is on the line. So people tend to get pretty catty and competitive. But the Great British Breaking Show is just so everyone is just so sweet and happy to be there. And I wonder if that is that like (laughs) kind of like a cultural thing that something you've noticed as well.
1: I think it probably is because I, I i knew there was a very vague acquaintance of mine i remember who, who who was teaching at the art school here who ended up on i knew his wife a little bit and he ended up on another of those quite i mean it wasn't as popular as the bake-off but it was a thing called master chef and um you'd get these sort of very serious amateur cooks cooking and i remember this guy Got into the latter stages of this competition, and his wife was complaining that she was sort of getting fed up of these incredibly rich dishes he was trying out on her. You know, it was always involving masses of double cream and things. Oh
0: yeah, yeah, because <laughs> when but it's yeah, sense. when you hear about these people and that going going back home during the week and practicing, I just I just picture the the vast amounts of butter just bestowed upon family members and it's like a blessing and a curse at the same time. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. So, But I think there is this sort of collegiate feel, I think, about a lot of those programs, the British programs. And actually one of the, the things that always surprised me about um, getting involved in non-fiction was how again, to use that word collegiate, how helpful people were really
0: which is very very nice yeah for sure for sure that's something that just kind of resonated with us watching it it's like because you know there are the st- it's just kind of for bragging rights all they win is a cake plate that we know of and <laughs> and it's just uh for the for the love of of baking but over over here everything is just so rooted in like it's just this almost vitriolic competitiveness which can be a bit off-putting
1: I suppose they encourage that as well because they like... I mean, you get that a little bit on British things, trying to think, what? But I've certainly come across that, where they, they're obviously trying to create tension for, to, for drama, yeah. dramatic purposes.
0: What's the challenge in creating suspense and narrative drive with something that is non-fiction-based and you cannot use your imagination?
1: Well, I think there, there are, I suppose you can, You primarily when you're looking, when I'm looking for a story, I'm looking for one that has as much narrative drive as possible and as much potential to, to extract every drop of of that kind of drive. And there are obviously ways in which you can, without distorting the facts, you can impose a certain amount of drive on it. For instance, you can say on the the, the book I wrote, two books down the line from the police procedural, that was a multiple character story, and you can then start cutting from one character to another. So you can get a certain amount of propulsion, even when there's not a massive amount going on, just that sense of cutting can create some movement. And you can create movement, I think, through quite short sections or short chapters, that kind of thing. And but obviously, you, as you say, you're, you you are dependent on the material. So I'm I'm obviously always looking for things that have not just a, a strong narrative, but maybe twists within it, uh, just just inbuilt odd twists where you can blindside readers. Mm.
0: And when you're in the throes of a a project, uh, and maybe you can tie this into King Khan, is uh, what is your daily ritual around the work so you feel like you're accomplishing what you want to set out when you wake up in the morning?
1: Well, it depends at what stage. I suppose I'm very driven by... I've, I've just found a method that just works for me, really. So I tend to... I, I, I'm dy- always dying to be writing. That's the, the thing I most enjoy. Though often when I'm involved in the writing, I'm not enjoying it so much. And I think oh, the bit I really enjoy is the, the revision, which I think in the end is is the bit that's most pleasurable for me. Mm. But I, I, in in if I was starting w- once I I'd, I'd put together a book proposal, and obviously as as the books have become. As I've become more and more involved in the world of of agents and that kind of decent advances or good advances, that's determined a certain element of this. So that proposals for books now are pretty demanding. So you end up having to do quite a lot of research and you need to get quite a sense of the structure of your book even before you've started properly researching it. So, these proposals can be easily be fifty pages long, and you can end up writing thousands of words in these sample passages, which are I uh, it's a sort of daft idea in lots of ways because you're you're producing samples for a book you haven't researched, and you've got to kind of create these mock ups and as a writer friend of mine said to me very wittily, she said, "Oh, well, it's a bit like someone saying to you." Well, I hear you cook a fantastic lasagna, but look, I don't want to put you to the trouble of cooking the whole thing. I'll just try a spoonful of it. <laughs> and it's, that that does express the ludicrous nature of this. And, and your book proposals can be, I will we'll come on to to answering what you were, you were asking me about in a sack. The book proposals can even be, they tend to be treated more and more, it seems, as if say the chapter summaries, as if they're summaries of an existing book rather than just this vague idea of what you might do or what you might find. Yeah. And that would be a bit frustrating. But, but I, I beyond producing these sample things, I, I, once that's done and, say, the advances, I've, I've managed to get an advance for something, I then start pretty methodically over maybe a year just researching And I'm not doing any writing other than researching, just jotting down. Well, it's more than jotting. I'm copying down chunks of things. I I, I tend to be a bit paranoid about just somehow using, letting someone else's phrasing sink into my subconscious and then finding its surfaces in my book. So I just copy out chunks. And I, I tend to lay out everything chronologically in files and just work my way through maybe... In the case of King Khan, I just hoovered up everything I could find, and then i system I systematically look for obviously stuff about the person I'm writing about all the story I'm writing about might involve multiple people and I try and find out as much as I can about all the people that cross paths with the person I start cross indexing it, then I start building up files about the places the locations through which they move at that particular time I use I mean, one of the blessings of it's not paradox, I think, for my kind of writing is that you often find that, um, well, that the digital world has opened up amazing opportunities to portray the analog world so that I can do searches of newspaper archives that I couldn't do when I started writing nonfiction so that, say, for instance, I'm looking to find out about Trains or buses in a certain city. I can just do a word search with a very limited keywords and a limited time span, and you can then pull out all sorts of things that you're looking for. Uh, I'm often very attentive in the research. I've got to know the sort of thing I want. It opens up the possibility of you just being buried beneath stuff. So with with this, with King Khan, I was a bit more tightly focused, I hope, <laughs> in, in in trying to follow those leads. And so I'd work my way through and I get to the point where i not only the well the deadline obviously bears down on you say if you've got it being given a couple of years, I really am dividing it up, a year's research and then a year's writing. But towards the end of the research, I'm starting to put together a a breakdown, really, a kind of treatment, that, as as the movie people would say, uh, for the book. So I'm looking for a way, I'm looking for scenes. I've heard guests on your programme before talking about exactly the same thing. Excuse me. And I'm always looking for scenes and I'm looking for, for, yeah, the... Elements of the story that will provide you with that physical detail and a bit of drama, and then you start looking for where you'll begin the story, and that's when things start to get very exciting though i i something that might be helpful to your listeners is is that I always find that beginning's tremendously hard uh just because there's so much at stake at that point, you're conscious that. In beginning the book, you want to hook people, you want to really carry them along, but you've got to introduce, say, with something like King Khan. you've got to give a sense of the person you're dealing with and the period in which it's happening, because I'm always writing historically. Uh, so they're, they're often, well, they're always alien worlds. So you need to give a sense of that world, but you've got to do that without clotting the, the narrative. So I tend to, quite often, just start writing somewhere else. And and with my first book, I started writing. I just thought I'm going to start writing somewhere that feels easiest, that's going to be most fun, and it's just unproblematic. And then I started spreading backwards and forwards through through time in that biography and with King Khan I didn't write the beginning for for quite a long time then I wrote various different beginnings and wasn't sure about quite where to begin it how to pace it how to spring the various story surprises in 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 the narrative yeah you just learn about these things and I wish I'd I, I've had a lot of pleasure out of helping people I've met en route, because not, I'm not a writing teacher, but every now and then I've come across people and who've been very serious about writing non-fiction, and a couple of them who've become friends, have had things commissioned, and... Uh, uh, it's nice to be able to make things easier for them than it was for me because I, I spent a lot of time rattling around trying to get an agent, not knowing how it worked, all that kind of thing. And you can just save people a lot of bother with these sort of tips, really, and, and about how you where you find material. And so a lot of this stuff's common to to all nonfiction writers. And I find nonfiction writers uh, are so generous
0: I'm ninety nine percent of them wow it, it, with the the research and doing all that research for for so long sometimes it can be sometimes you can lose yourself in it so much where you feel like I'll start writing as soon as I get this bit of information you and you find ways to replace action with with mm. research or replace writing with research and um so how do you f- at what point do you feel like i'm done it's now time to start writing well it's it
1: i mean yeah i think you're absolutely right about about that because the research is quite addictive as well that's something i never ever anticipated especially that depth of research it's because it's a i often think it is tantamount to running a police investigation (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah you know, it's, it's it's a similar sort of process, and you're working on tip offs here and there, and you've evolved funny ways of trying to extract material from subjects that are seemingly resistant to to that kind of investigation and but for for me because I'm writing these books and generally you're given a couple of years, I do approach that halfway point in the deadline period and think. God, I've got to start writing. I'm just if not only because of the sense that the de- well, the deadline will be bearing down on you, and if if you overlap it, it your your advance doesn't go up. So it, you, you're potentially creating cash problems for yourself if you right. budget for a two-year period. You know, potentially really severe problems. So I've always got that that breathing down my neck, but at, at the same time, I'm I realise now that. You can still do the research while you're writing, so that, say with King Khan, I was still researching right up to late in the process, and the glory of that really is that you can find out what you need, that there are certain things that I think I've learned that... I don't necessarily need to research I I just know that I can say for instance your character rolls up in like like um the the the, the protagonist in in King Kong he rolls up in say 1919 Vancouver you you don't necessarily know at the point when you're researching that you'll use that material so now I'd be inclined not to research everything I can find about 1919 Vancouver till I'm damn sure that I need it otherwise you you really do enter into this sort of multi-layered type of research I mean there's all beneath all the the the, say researching the person the locations there's also another sort of layer a bit like some music production operation This kind of another track for me is the general social history of the period. I, I will research that so that the person can be tied in as, in as light a touch way as possible with things that are happening. For instance, Edgar LaPlante, the very, very strange impostor at the center of King Khan, he gets together in Salt Lake City in 1918, uh with a genuine, he's he has reinvented himself as a Native American. He's, he's a guy of a French-Canadian background. From, well, his parents are French-Canadian. And he's from Rhode Island. And he reinvents himself as a Native American, most famously as the supposed leader of the Canadian Cherokee called Chief White Elk. And he rolls up in Salt Lake City in March 1918. And within a very short space of time, he meets a rather glamorous and um, genuine native american woman named bertha thompson and bertha is where this keys in with sort of social history research is bertha is what would i mean i was unaware of this until i started doing the background reading she was what was known as a new woman at that stage this Feminist type of woman who was appearing at that point, who was independent and uh, living by herself, and uh, so it was. It was. It was interesting to see that side of things. And and in the case of just to carry on with this, because it's just a fantastic. It gives you a taste of of the material I had to work with. When the the self styled chief white elk is in Salt Lake City, he's he has he's so very good looking at that period and charming and just charismatic. Within the space of a mere week, he's ingratiated himself with the bigwigs of Salt Lake City, among them the mayor of the city and the governor of Utah. And he's proposed marriage to Bertha, who accepts, and the governor of Utah has allowed them to stage their public wedding ceremony on the steps of the of Salt Lake's equivalent of the White House, the state capitol, and five thousand people witnessed this ceremony. And it's just extraordinary the way this guy can, novelist-like, <laughs> impose his imagination on the world.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that's what really yeah you know, struck me about this guy: how opportunistic he was and willing to. Willing to do anything to to keep up the facade, it kind of reminded me of uh, Mad Men. You know, I, I don't know if you've seen Mad Men.
1: Have <laughs> yeah, it was, it was terrific, wasn't
0: it? Yeah, just kind of like how Don Drape, while uh, I, I forget his real his uh his actual name, but he had an opportunity. He knew that his own birth identity had was a dead end, but he had this opportunity to, to assume another man's identity and ran with it uh, and made himself. Who he was, and I kind of got that that sense through the Edgar Laplant here that it was like he needed to reinvent himself and which in a sense is a very American story in a way
1: yes, it's sort in in trying to encapsulate it. I remember saying to someone it was a bit like. He's a bit of a cross without risk of, of uh, exaggeration—a cross between Jay Gatsby and Tom Ripley—and he's even got a dash of kind of David Bowie about him in the sexual ambiguity and the sort of shape-shifting theatricality. And he's—I mean—he's definitely a, a Ripley-like figure. And he's, yeah, as you say, he's—he's—he's he's, he's quintessentially American. And he's also there's also something very topical about him about that kind of identity theft, and I love those stories which make you think, or or the stories that that develop themes which you think are distinctively modern, say distinctively 21st century, like the obsession with celebrity that he so brilliantly exploits, that's there in 1917. We we don't really change, do we, as as people? Our costumes change, the technology changes, but basically, a person in 1920s much like a person now.
0: I had a high school English uh, English a high school history teacher who said, uh, I don't know if he was, he made this up or he quoted it from someone else, but he said that times change, technology changes, but people don't.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think he's absolutely right. And uh, so there's something enduring about these stories. And he, yeah, just the way I think that Edgar Lapland, one of the things that's, that's really fascinating I found about him is the fact that he's he's not just one of those imposters. There are lots of imposter stories, but this is on a, a, an altogether more grandiose level. But also he's someone with incredible talent lots and lots of witnesses describe about how he's the greatest singer they've ever heard he's a sort of sweet-toned baritone and he clearly he had a good vaudeville career that would have got better and better and better and he was capable of filling up 2000 seat auditoria and so he he was getting a fair amount of that star thrill of people applauding him and the acclaim he wanted. Yet it was never enough. It was and he later became a, a addicted to cocaine and morphine and he was a, an alcoholic. And there's a sort of drug like drive to his craving for acclaim that he just wants more and more and more of it. And and he's not just a straight, he's not as straightforward to call him a con man would be a misnomer because He's not really, I mean, he cons people, but he's not a con man in the sense that it's about the money. It's never about the money. So that even at the the earliest recorded period of him committing crimes, which was when he was 14 and he was conning people even then, he was going around local shops in Central Falls, Rhode Island going in saying, I'm from Mr. Jones down the road and he needs some spare change. Can we have a bag of it? And and he was pulling this con, but he wasn't spending the money. He was giving it to his dad and saying, this is from my spare time job. It's my pay. And it was just about the thrill. And obviously, once he gets away with it once, it's not quite enough; he doesn't want to just repeat it. He wants to do something a bit bigger and so there's an inbuilt trajectory within the book that
0: it gets bigger
1: and bigger and bigger to as you know totally ludicrous levels
0: When you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, maybe in the process of writing a book of this nature that has so much research and and just uh its own heft to it so what do you do to get back on track so you can, you know, adequately approach the work and get yourself moving again?
1: Well, I I I suppose I found just as on a purely practical level, what was a tr- always a tremendous godsend to me was that as soon as I started writing on a computer, I could make deals with myself to just say, write. I'm not rereading this till I've written 10,000 words. I'm just going to let it disappear over the, the, the horizon of my screen and just plough on. And sometimes if I've hit particularly difficult sections, I, I always want to just bang in something, a bit like a painter. So just putting in some marks, I'll just put in what I can and move on. And if I know, I'll realize even the best, even what seems like the best stuff, you reread and think, why did I think that was good? Yeah. And then you read it, reread the right rewrite. And then you think, yeah, I was pleased with this at the time, but I don't like it now. But gradually, it's just a process of going over and over it. And I find I think the thing that the best advice I could give is to just plough on, just keep going, just keep, because you can always revise it. But I think revision as you go along can be tremendously destructive of what you're doing. And you can become too focused on the minutiae, on producing lovely sentences. I think you just need to concentrate on telling your story and then you can then you can start thinking about the structure that will tell it. Well, ideally, you've mapped out the structure beforehand. That's silly English. I should say that first. But you, you can go back over this stuff and you can rewrite and rewrite. And I was rewriting it until really, you know, two weeks before King Kong went to, to press. And we were still finding. I mean, that's the thing about these things. A lot of stuff you don't notice on screen It gets printed out. And then you think. Why didn't I notice this? And and even after 25 people have read something and it's been proved, things sneak past. It's just the way of the, the business, really.
0: And what's your endurance for a, a writing session? How long can you go before you have to go for a walk or just unplug from it altogether? I think going for walks is
1: just a great thing to do because you can still work, but you're just getting a bit of exercise, fresh air away from a screen if you're using a screen. I tend to, I tend to just, my hours, I probably, I, I get up early, not necessarily out of particular choice. I've just been trained into it because my other half takes so long to get ready to go to work that it is often and always wants the radio on and just listening to the news and things. The only way to cope with that was always to get up before her. And I used to happily sleep in to of quarter to nine or something. And often in the past, I was working on jobs where I was working in the evening. So I could have done that. But eventually, I just ended up getting up to 6.30. And I'm generally at my desk by about, with a cup of tea, maybe 20 to eight, something like that, half past seven. And I, I sort of potter away, do some some things, brush my teeth, get back to work. And I'll work till 12 o'clock, have some lunch. I'll work a bit more, go out and get some shopping, work a bit more. I don't generally these days particularly like working in the evenings. Though sometimes Say so with King Khan, I had a period when I was getting very behind and I felt I've just got to have a run of, say, three, four weeks of working a lot of evenings. And you did, I did really feel like I was in the material. It, it gave a certain sort of <laughs> obsessive thrill to it. But I'd, I'd rather not work all the time. But I do tend to, to work quite a bit at weekends. And, yeah, I just plough away. I mean, I don't do stretches of of eight hours writing i do bits and pieces take a break or go for a walk and i'm not averse to meeting someone for a coffee every now and then during the day. so it's a reasonably kind of casual routine i I put in the hours but they're not in the end when you read if you're strictly honest about (laughs) you know what hours i'm doing they're not freakishly long they're just spread out over most of the week
0: And over the course of your body of work from book to book, what would you say you've improved with uh, over the course of the body of work, things you do very well now that maybe you didn't do as well early? I wouldn't
1: necessarily claim to do anything very well. I just can do
0: things better than I
1: did to start with, really. (laughs) Um, I mean there are things, with all of us, there are things we like doing. you know, I like descriptive passages, and so I've always got to be wary of just overdoing it, and I like passages where you can inject a kind of sardonic humor into it, or but I think it's the storytelling I think that have improved a lot, just an awareness of how stories work best, and how about revealing things, holding them back, and I suppose some of that what helped with that quite a lot was the what would it be it would be my third book that was actually it was a was a bit of a departure from the track I was following because although i I thought I was going to keep writing these uh, narrative non fiction books that w- weren 't biographies. Uh, I I was persuaded to do a biography of this Soho in London um, very louche guy who was a, uh, a pioneering in, in England, strip club owner and cabaret owner who was, he, his club featured in the Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour and he sort of pushed, he was interesting because he pushed at the boundaries of censorship in theatre and and all sorts of areas. I and mean, he wasn't someone I was actually necessarily drawn to, but my agent, knowing I was interested in Soho and had a lot of family connections with that area. Um... Uh, he, My agent had suggested this, and I started rather grudgingly doing some test research on this guy, Paul Raymond, and found that I liked it, and then got going on the book. But at a later stage, the the book got picked up to be made into a movie, and, and I ended up working on, as an advisor on for the scriptwriter, and that was in, and was the movie ended up being made with with Steve Coogan, the comedian, as paul Roman, and by British standards, it was on a very big budget and there was quite we had quite a lot of time i may mean, say we i wasn't that involved, but I, it, it gave me a chance to sort of think about the process of storytelling, and probably i've become more cinematic in the way I approach it in the way I sort of structure scenes. Uh, and I think that, that having got to the end of King Kong, I've I would approach the thing is you you I'd approach that book quite differently, well subtly differently if I was to start again now. The thing is there's a temptation, isn't there, when you look at these books to think that that's the only way they can be. And and also as say if you're a an apprentice writer, I'd just backtracking to some of the things we were talking about before i'd really advise people not to try not to get intimidated by favorite writers because you can look at books you can start flicking through books and you see oh so and so does this descriptive business 500 times better than i'll ever be able to do but what you don't think about in that moment of self-flagellation is the fact that the book you've just looked at fine it may be written by someone who's immensely talented and far more talented than than you or i will ever be but that book is nonetheless the product of collaborative work with an editor a copy editor friends fellow writers it's been gone through about 500 times and the thing that you're comparing it to this descriptive passage you've just written that morning shouldn't be compared to this finished piece so i think you've got to be try and be fair on yourself and not make those kind of comparisons, that your your rough-and-ready piece was probably similar to the, that published writer's rough-and-ready piece maybe you know a few years earlier before it had gone through these endless drafts. So, uh, yeah, I t- try and... I mean, I'm aware of things that I can do better than other things, and I suppose you, you want to play to your strands.
0: How did you cultivate a, a sense of of patience with your own work to to put down enough bad sentences and bad words to get to the good stuff? I think it's, it's a bit like being
1: a kid and doing something. I mean, it's, yeah, it's no different from things you do as a kid where some teacher will say to you, oh, you, you're really good at tennis or whatever it is. Uh, and that bit of praise will encourage you to do more of it then you get better, you get more praise, which everybody likes some praise. And it's with writing, I think if you just have some encouragement, you can, because it's easy to think as well, say, if you're unpublished, you look at published writers and you think they're immune to self-doubt. And yeah, they they just contend with different sorts of criticism that it's much more public. So you get a terrible review. And I can under- I well understand why a lot of published writers just don't read reviews because you is is a good idea in lots of ways because you're you're not swung by praise and you're not crushed by um criticism so I think you've just got to get a sense that if you can be if you find someone who can help you encourage you enough over that period when you're beginning to to keep you to make you keep on and I think yeah it's, it's really you're really dependent a lot on other people obviously you've got to have a core of self-belief to keep going particularly as you you inevitably get a lot of rejections from all sorts of quarters let's face it anything that's written isn't to isn't going to be to everybody's cup of tea there's always going to be There are always going to be people that hate whatever you do, and you've just got to feel that, well, there are some people who are going to like it, I'm going to do it, and you're doing it for yourself as well. Though not to a point of self-involvement, I hope, especially with non-fiction, which has this nice feel about looking out at the world, which I think there's something very healthy about it. So I remember a novelist saying to me, I was doing a lot of interviews for, they were kind of transcripts for a a book magazine for for quite a long time. And I remember interviewing a very nice novelist who said to me, at the end of the interview, we were just chatting and I said to him, well, at that stage, I just started writing nonfiction. I said, God, I'm surprised about this nonfiction business that it's it's expanded my social circle. And, And this guy said very dryly, he said, well you'll find that writing fiction shrinks your social circle. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the lovely things about writing nonfiction is you meet people and you get out and, and it's not, it's less self-involved. I mean, that's probably an unfair thing to say about writing fiction, to say it's self-involved, but it could be. And non-fiction is, by its very nature, a lot of it, unless you're writing autobiographically, um, you're looking outwards.
0: Right. So, so Paul, where can people uh, maybe uh, find you online and get a little more familiar with you and your work? And then, where can people find the book if they want to go buy King Con and and uh, and, and and devour it and uh, hopefully buy another copy for their friends? Oh well, thank you. Um,
1: I've got a website that's www. And then it's Paul P A U L W I com and that has a lot of stuff on, like all sorts of things, bonus pictures. I rather like that DVD-type bonus extras concept that I've tried to put on the website. So for each book, there's a lot of extra stuff. There's a, a filmmaker, and I did a sort of spoof movie trailer. Uh, a guy, actually, I mean, say casually, a filmmaker. He ends up as the, the British entry for the Venice Film Festival. So he directed a terrific. Trailer for the la- um, yeah it's the last book and the King Con, there are some bonus pictures online that sort of thing and and the book itself which is a lovely production the Crown who published it in in America Canada and they've exported to Britain have done an amazing job it's available in all bookshops and online on yeah just all the usual places Barnes and Noble Amazon indie bound, i think it is Uh, excuse my ignorance about the the (laughs) the book selling scene and um yeah so um well i hope hope your listeners like it i mean it was was a great amount of fun to, to research and write it so i hope that actually comes through in the book itself
0: well what else can be said thanks to you for listening and thanks to paul for coming on the show Thanks also to our sponsor, Hippocamp 2018. Today, as in August 10th, is the final day to cash in on the $50 discount by using the coupon code CNFPOD at checkout. And last call for reviews on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, and to head over to brendanomera.com to sign up for my Groovy newsletter. I can't think of anything else to say except thanks for listening. I gotta go now.